Welcome to Living Streams. I'm David Stockton. I've been at this game for a while. Um, I've been a lead pastor of Living Streams for about four, four years, a little over four years now. Yeah. And I was talking with somebody, and literally, I've been reluctantly being a pastor since I was 17 years old. And I'm 42, so some years going on there. I'm getting old. I'm getting old. That's pretty good. Some of you are like, nah, you're a whippersnapper. That's fine. You can think that. Um, but we're going to be in Matthew chapter 26. If you want to turn a Bible there, um, we just went through a series of spiritual formation where we were trying to really understand what that is, what it looks like, what it feels like. Um, and we talked about moving from being less Christ-like to more Christ-like. And just so you know, this morning as you guys were singing... I came out and I came into the room while you guys were like already warmed up and going for it. And I was like, wow, there's some powerful people in here. I think you guys are, I think a lot of you are looking like Christ. And it was pretty cool to see in that moment just the potential. Um, I literally almost felt like the room was just like slanted forward and you guys were all just like leaning in and you were just about to jump and tackle Jay or something like that. Which, don't do that, because we have security, and it'd get all kinds of crazy, but, you know, but I just, I love the, like, pressing in, and the Lord is here, the Lord is on the move. Um, the other night, we had a prayer service, and, like, four people got genuinely healed, which is stuff you read about in the Bible, and you forget that God's still doing it today. Uh, we'll talk about it next week, so, you know, you can save your claps for next week. Um, I wanted to talk about this next, today, but I, I got to talk about it next week. Um, but yeah, so it's, it's neat. Be, be ready. Be on the lookout. Um, Aslan is on the move for you people that like Narnia. I really, really believe it. Um, and I'm pretty skeptical, so that means something. <laughs> um, anyways, Matthew 26, where we're going to be, where we talked about spiritual formation. Now we're going to talk about spiritual practices. Now, spiritual practices... We have, we have talked about they help us in our spiritual formation. They help us go from being less Christ-like to more Christ-like. Spiritual practices help us move through the roadmap or the stages of spiritual formation. Spiritual practices, however, you've got to hear this. They are not guarantees. You can't rub the genie and get what you want with God. He is God. He knows what's best. He determines. And sometimes we fall into this trap where we think, I'm going to pray, and if I pray right or pray good or pray long enough, then God will give me what I want. That is an immature relationship with God, and it will not last and it will not produce. Sometimes we think if I fast, then I'll get breakthrough. It's possible. It's happened before. But there's no guarantees in it because we don't control God. If I read my Bible, eventually I'll start living like the Bible teaches. I, I, can't, I can't tell you there's any guarantees with these things. But they have proven over time to be very helpful in the life of a believer, these spiritual practices. And here we're going to learn a little bit of the way this works out with Jesus and his disciples. Jesus was discipling the, the men that were with him and the women that were around as well. But he was discipling these ones in particular and he was trying to teach them about spiritual practices and the need for them. And he had been doing that for three years and here's what they learned. Verse 36 of chapter 26. Then Jesus went with his disciples, apprentices, to a place called Gethsemane. 
And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? And he asked, he asked Peter, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. And those of you who, who know, he's, when he's talking about drinking, he's talking about the cross. He's talking about death and crucifixion and the pain and the wrath of God. And then when he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you serious? No, he didn't say it. He said, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. It's a very intense moment. He had just had the Last Supper with his disciples explaining to him again that he was going to have to go to the cross. He'd washed their feet. And now he's extremely sorrowful, overwhelmed, and he goes to this garden where he's prayed many times before, and he asks them to keep watch and to pray, lest they fall into temptation. He knows that just as he's about to go through a trial, they will as well. And he asks them to pray. And three times, three strikes, they're out. They were actually out on the first one, <laughs> sleeping. And the reason I want to read this is I want us to just get in our mind that Jesus, he knows about life. He knows about spiritual formation. He knows what it was like. And he was trying to teach his disciples over and over and over things that they could do to help. And in this moment, he tells them specifically, I want you to watch and pray because temptation is coming, because my betrayer is coming, but, but the devil's coming for you too. You're going to go through a tough time, just like I am, and I'm going to pray. I'm going to set aside time. I'm going to stop everything, and I'm going to seek the Lord and try and get my will in line with his because I'm feeling the strain. And he was telling them to do the same thing. And that time after time, they didn't because their eyes were heavy. Because they were tired. Because they didn't understand what was at stake. And sure enough, these disciples, who Jesus found, most of them fishing, and he called them away from fishing for fish to fishing for men, and then within three days of this moment, all of them are back in the boat fishing for fish. For three years, Jesus had tried to get into their hearts and souls. And it only took three days for them to be right back where they were before he found them. 
because they didn't understand and know the value of spiritual practices that Jesus was trying to teach him. Now, spiritual practices, they are not things that get us into the grace of God. We can't, like we said, rub the genie and get what we want. We can't do these spiritual practices to try and get God to love us or get into the grace of God. But what these spiritual practices do is they help us remain in the grace of God, remain in the love of God, and maybe even go deeper and further in to the love and grace of God. Now, the problem is we live in a very crazy world that's not prone to kind of teach us spiritual practices. Picture this. Picture yourself as a driver at the Daytona 500. I'm not a race car guy. Anybody in here race car people? Okay, we got a few. We got a few. I think there's only a few in first service too, but everybody else, you can, you can track with me. So picture yourself. You're behind the car, uh, a race car, and, and you got another 39 cars just jammed up around you, and you're beginning your first of 200 laps, and you're going to be going nearly 200 miles an hour, and the roar of the 200,000 fans, the roar of the other 39 race car engines, the roar of your own engine the speed at which you're going, the blurriness of everything just flying by on either side. It's hard to kind of maneuver. It's hard to turn it all because of the speed at which you're going. Even the slightest turns require strength and energy. This is, this is a little bit of, of what it's like living in our modern city, in our modern world. And what's crazy is we're so used to it that we don't notice it. But there is so much noise in our world. There is so much crowd in our world. The world, especially here in America, is flying by so fast. The pace at which we're living our lives causes everything to blur. And that's why we hear older people all the time tell us, man, I don't know where the years have gone. Time flies. They call it a rat race. And oftentimes when they say it, they say they wish they would have slowed down more often. Well, spiritual practices are things that we do to create those moments, to create more awareness of God, to slow us down, to keep us on pace with, with what God is doing in our lives. It's just like as that race car driver, you come around one of those turns and all of a sudden one of your teammates is standing there with a big sign that says, time for a pit stop. And you know it's going to be very difficult for you to maneuver out of this crowd of cars. You know that if you were to stop, you'd lose your position or place. And you've got a decision to make. Are you going to stop or are you just going to keep on going? Now, all of the great race car drivers, they know they have to stop. They have to stop because their engine can burn up. Welcome to America. <laughs> their fuel could run out. Their tires could burn out. But you know what? That's not really the reason they stop. And I thought this was interesting. The, mo the, the reason that they stop more so than that is because if they can do these regular pit stops, they don't have to carry as much fuel so they can have a lighter car and go faster. If they can do these regular pit stops, their, car, their tires actually don't wear so much that they get better performance and traction as they go around, which again helps them with speed and efficiency. And also the driver gets a little pit stop so that he can get instructions, so that he can know what's going on, so he can gather his thoughts, drink a Red Bull, and get back out there. I don't know what they drink, Red Bull, whatever. 
But that's what these spiritual practices are. They're wrestling away. What you're doing right now is a spiritual practice. Sorry if you don't like them. You're doing it. You, you can't help. But for those of you who are like, hey, cool, I'll take that. I'll take any credit I can get. You're doing one right now. This is a spiritual practice. This is not what Christians are supposed to do. Church is not what Christians do. We've said that a million times. Church, like this, is just supposed to help Christians do what they're supposed to do. Basically, all this is is just a table on the side of the road with a little bit of orange slices here, a little bit of Gatorade here. And you guys are running the marathon. We're all out there running the marathon. God doesn't want to make you good at church. He wants to make you good at life. And so good for you for practicing once a week to come into a place like this where you can get some orange slices. Mm, yeah. You can drink some Gatorade. Not Kool-Aid. Don't be drinking the Kool-Aid, but drink some Gatorade, right? <laughs> drink some Gatorade. And then get right back out there. But if one hour a week is your only spiritual practice, you're going to be a horrible marathon runner. If I'm your only source of understanding God, yikes! Anyways, spiritual practices, you get the concept. Um, let's jump into it. We've made a list for you that we're going to unpack for the next couple of months. These are general. We're going to kind of give us uh, smaller things underneath. For instance, stillness is a category. Sabbath, um, fasting, these type of things that slow us down would fall under that. But stillness, prayer, obedience, cooperating with the Holy Spirit, serving the poor, worship, sharing your faith, sacrificial love. These are spiritual practices. There's other lists. There's other things. But we'll make this real clear to you. Um, this is what our team came up with. Now I want to read to you from this book, Learning to Live and Love Like Jesus. I didn't write it in case you're wondering. You're like, he's selling. This guy, Brandon Cook. And uh, I've been going through this, and it's really, really ex like in exhaustive. Is that what you're saying? Like it's thorough. It, it unpacks a lot of these things, makes it really simple. There's little pictures in there if you like pictures. Um, but this is a helpful book if you want to get really, if we're going through this series and you're like, man, I need to get into this stuff, or I need to get with my bros and we need to be about this, whatever it is, this, this is a really helpful thing. Um, but I want to read you just a few quotes from there um, real quick. Brandon Cook says, with spiritual practices, we are not working to earn anything. Rather, we are laboring to become more aware of what Jesus has already done, to the resources he has already made available to us, and to what he is now doing around us. If only Christians could really get better at this, we'd make a real dent in the depravity of this world. This is huge. He also says with spiritual practices, we have to take responsibility for our spiritual lives by arranging them in a way that creates space for encounter with God. This is huge because we live in a day and age now where you can go to church and hear some guy talk about the Lord or girl. You can listen to a podcast from great Bible teachers all over the world. You can read books for a pretty cheap price help you figure out who God is. You could basically have your entire relationship with God lived off someone else's food. But if that's what you're doing, you're missing what God has for you. You got to go get yours. Because that's what's really going to nourish your soul more than anything. And then you can contribute to, those, to, the, to the rest of the world what God shares with you. I titled this message, There's No Fast Food in Heaven. And you'll get that in just a second. 
But it's also true that there's no borrowing somebody else's food in heaven. Remember the manna that God provided for the people? And sure, some of, the, some of you entrepreneurial people, if you were there, you'd be like, dude, I'm going to stockpile this stuff. I'm going to get up earlier than everybody, get all the manna right here, and I'm going to sell it for the next few days. <laughs> but what happened is the next day it was all moldy and nasty. God made sure that you could only get yours, and you had to get it every day. And so he's, he, I love what he says here. That it's, time, it's time for you, every single one of you, it's time for you to take responsibility for your own spiritual formation and begin to figure out how to get from God what he has for you and grow in God in the way that he has for you. It's time. It's time. Everybody. Some of you can, you can get a lot of help from others. We always need help from others, but um, it's important to remember that. And lastly, he says, spiritual practices cause us to become more aware of God's nearness and goodness. That's what they're all about. It's not some legalistic trip where you can kind of, you know, put patches on your helmet, stickers on your helmet, patches on your vest. I didn't play a lot of football or Boy Scouts or anything, so just going with that. But it really is just to make more space for us to, to experience the nearness and goodness of God. Okay, so what we're going to talk about today is stillness. We're going to hit that first one, stillness. Stillness is a spiritual practice. It makes a lot of sense in our day and age, in our modern city. Stillness is something so hard to come by. I'll just ask you a quick question. When's the last time you were alone, in a quiet place, in silence, for an hour, and you weren't sleeping? <laughs> When's the last time you were in a place of silence by yourself for a half hour and you weren't sleeping. Whew. It's tough to find it these days. It's really tough to find it these days. So under stillness, we've got the slow life. It's figuring out how to slow life down. Um, there's a book right here this is a, actually a, a, an old friend of mine, John Mark Comer, who wrote this book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. Um, and, it's, and it's his, he's a great writer and communicator, but he's actually um, tapping into something that's not his. This quote, Ruthless of Elimination of Hurry, is actually from a guy named Dallas Willard. And Dallas Willard was, uh, he's passed away now, but he was a great Christian thinker, Christian writer. And he really kind of devoted his life to figuring out how a person can actually transform. Not just put on a good shell or, or kind of, you know, strive their way into holding together some sort of good thoughts. But he actually digs in and says desires and will and, and, and habits and all these things. How can someone actually really change their stripes, so to speak? The Bible talks about it. We've seen it in Christianity. How can it really happen? And so he digs in that. He wrote a book called The Renovations of the Heart. And he was speaking with a guy named John Ortberg, and John Ortberg was a disciple of Dallas Willard, who then was discipling John Mark. So that's where the stream kind of came from. But I want us to go back and look at this conversation between John Ortberg and Dallas Willard, where this phrase first took root. And the reason I'm saying this phrase is so important because it's in this book as well, and then it's in this other book I was reading. So it's kind of this stream of thought that is very helpful and I think very important for our world today. But John Ortberg was sitting with his mentor, Dallas Willard, and he said, what would it take, Dallas, to live a life caught up in the goodness of God like you're always talking about. And Dallas Willard, who I guess was kind of a funny guy, he paused for a minute, and then he looked at John, and he said, 
the ruthless elimination of hurry. And John Orberg wrote that down. He said, okay, that sounds interesting. And he said, okay, I got it. What else? And Dallas Willard paused for some time and said, that's all. There's nothing else. And basically what he's tapping into there, it's very interesting because we have all these Christian practices, prayer, the scripture, obedience, um, telling, you know, sharing your faith, serving the poor, all these things. These are all wonderful things, spiritual practices that can help us create space for encounters with God, no doubt about it. But we as Americans, all we do is we just try to add it to the list. Oh, another thing? Oh, another thing? All right, throw that on my back. Okay, I'll add that to the calendar. I'll jam that in there. I'll just wake up earlier. I'll stay up later. I'll do... And... and and we never actually get any, anything from them. And so really what is foremost is we need to create space. We need to see our lives at the pace they are and create some sort of slow practice. This is why Sabbath is such a reoccurring theme from start to finish. God is commanding his people. He's commanding you. God commands that you rest one out of seven. It's not just the Ten Commandments way back when. It continues throughout all of Scripture. God commands that you rest one out of seven. That you create that pace in your life. And then if you look at the life of Jesus, we see this exemplified so beautifully. I'm going to read some scriptures to you from the Gospels. The Gospels, basically Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are four writers that were trying to help us get a, get a feel for, get, a, get an understanding as what it was like to see Jesus in the flesh, to see God walking around as a person. And here are some of the things they, they remark about Jesus. Matthew 14, 23 says, After he sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. Mark 6, 46. After bidding them farewell, he left for the mountain to pray. Luke 6, 12. It was at that time that he went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. Mark 1, 35. In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. Luke 9, 18. And it happened that while he was praying alone, the disciples were with him and he questioned them saying, who do you, the people say that I am? Matthew 26, we already read it. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. Luke 11, 1. It happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. And then John 6, Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force. This is right after he fed the 5,000. He withdrew again to a mountain by himself. And we know he stayed there until the middle of the night and then walked on water to catch up to the boat where his disciples were. And then Luke 5, 16 just kind of sums it all up. Luke says, but Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. This was a practice, and Jesus cultivated a slow life. And he had a big job, a lot bigger than yours, Mr. Fancy Pants. 
but I'm so busy. I got such a big job. Try carrying the world on your shoulders. And Jesus made the greatest impact in all of human history. And he lived a slow life. He lived a small life in a lot of comparisons. He lived a small town life. Didn't travel much. And yet still all over the world, knees are bowing to his lordship. He taught us something that we have got to relearn. We've got to relearn. So the stillness, the slow life, fasting is something that we practice. And I, to me, what that does whenever I fast is it causes me to have to slow down. I can't do all the things that I used to do. Rest, silence, solitude. Jesus taught, if anyone is weary or heavy laden, they should come to him and he will give them rest. They should learn of him. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. So if you're carrying a heavy burden all the time in your Christianity, you might not be practicing the way of Jesus. You might be practicing something you kind of made up and threw Jesus' name on it. And it doesn't mean we don't work. You're supposed to work six days. So there's a lot of work involved in this. But you've got to be able to rest and cultivate that rest in our lives. I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of illnesses, mental and physical, a lot of relationship challenges that we go through could be fixed if we just figured out how to slow down a little bit. The way Jesus tried to teach his disciples to. We've got to figure out how to ruthlessly eliminate hurry from our lives. Mark Buckley, the founder of this church, he has done this great in the second half of his life. <laughs> and I said that first service and he was here and he, he just bust out laughing. But I've had the benefit of watching him go through what he went through, serving the Lord way more than God had asked him to and ending up in a place where he needed to get mental health and yet he did. He ruthlessly eliminated hurry from his life. And it goes against every fiber in his being. He is so type A. But he has gone to, he goes to bed at a certain time every night. He eats very differently. He gets exercise all the time. He takes a little medicine as the doctor prescribed, even though he hates it. Feels like a failure every time he does. He has done so many things that have been so hard for him so that he could be more productive than ever before. And it has been a beautiful thing to watch. And it's probably saved me from so much mental breakdown in the name of Jesus or whatever. We've got to figure this stuff out. When Britt and I moved to Belize, we um, went and lived in a village of about 400 people. They had no running water and uh, wasn't a lot of Wi-Fi. <laughs> no Wi-Fi. Um, and we lived there, and I remember how difficult it was for me because of the pace of life. I 
was going insane, I felt like. I remember just one, we would go to the city because we couldn't really get anything we needed in the village. So we would go to the city once in a while and we'd be able to buy like food <laughs> and stuff like that. We didn't have a car either, so we had to like catch a ride. Or, um, and so we'd go to the city and we, I'd have a list of 10 things and I would just like fight with everyone in Belize in the city because it was just so inconvenient and slow. And I would just be, I, by the time I'd be like yelling at people, I'm like the missionary yelling at all the Belizeans because I'm so frustrated because they didn't make my sub faster and, and then they didn't check out this and then, you know, I, it was just, and I'd go home so frustrated and so just fatigued. And then it was funny because I remember like a few months later, we started making a list of like two things and we would still barely get those done, but we would go home real peaceful. And it, I mean, what, it, what they taught me, God sent me there because I needed to learn how to slow down. And Belize taught me how to slow down. Basically, I realized I had spent my whole life in fifth gear. And then I would go on a vacation. I would slow way down to fourth gear. And I'd be like, wah, wah, wah. And that was kind of like my whole life. And then I went down to Belize. And all of a sudden, it was like first gear. Are you serious? We'll never get there. And then neutral every once in a while. But then I came back from Belize stepped into Phoenix, and I was like, whoa, whoa, look at them go. Look at all of them. Wow, look at that. Did you? The pace of life was insane. And I've been here for another four years, and guess what? I'm just as insane as everybody else again <laughs> in some ways. But I've, it just taught me and gave, and being there for that long, it transformed me. And now I've been able to cultivate in my life a real value and practice of stillness. That's challenged all the time, no doubt about it. But it's really been one of the most rewarding spiritual practices of my entire life. And I'm so thankful for it. Well, we're going to close our, mess, our, our uh, time here together a little early because we want to make room for the life group fair that's going on. And anybody that wants to sign up for the spiritual practice of doing life together in community, um, you can go out there and do that. But right now, let's just go ahead and do this. Let's just go ahead and quiet our hearts. Let's take a moment. The ushers are going to come forward and pass out the bread and the cup. This is a practice that Jesus asked his disciples to do, to remember him, to stop every once in a while, and remember what's important. Remember his love. Remember that he loved you so much he was willing to die for you. Remember that he loved you so much he was willing to pay the price for your sins. Remember that he loves you so much that he was willing to give the spirit to you. And remember that he is so powerful that he was able to rise from the dead so that you and I have nothing to fear ever. Just take this time. You can hold the cup and the bread and close your eyes if you're comfortable with that. And ask the Lord to speak to you about your pace of life. And ask the Lord to speak to you about your, the burden you're carrying. The Bible says his voice is like a still, small voice. He's not going to shout to get your attention. 
He's just going to keep whispering until you finally quiet down and hear what he has to say.